Before we start this podcast, I want to give my condolences to the families from the Texas shooting that happened this week. My heart is with you all. And if you are local to our Texas area, please think about donating blood to the hospitals, plasma, or whatever you can to the community that was forever shaken. Welcome to Murder by Nature, where we discuss true crime, mystery disappearances, and unsolved cases. I'm Jasmine, your host. Today we'll be talking about the murder of Bonnie Sanborn. Before we dive into this episode, we're going to go through the references that made it possible. Devil in Details, Episode 1, The Daily Newspaper, Archived Edition, 1993-2009 to from Tucson, Arizona. Unusual Suspects, Episode Killer Nearby. On December 8, 1995, Brandon Sanborn went into his mother Bonnie's room to wake her up when he noticed that her door was locked. Brandon knocked on the door for quite some time but couldn't get a response from his mom. This was very unusual for his mother, so Brandon decided to go get his older sister Candace to see if maybe she can help him. Bonnie's room had a sliding door that led out to the backyard, and Candace knew that Bonnie would leave the store unlocked sometimes, so thinking her mom just might be in the shower, she decided that she was going to go use the sliding door to let her know that Brandon was looking for her. When she walked to the door, she was met with a gruesome scene. Bonnie Stanborn, maiden Sullivan, was born August 14, 1954, to Raymond and Shirley Sullivan. She was the only daughter with two brothers. Bonnie was an incredibly loving person. Anyone that would see her would say that she didn't have a bad bone in her body. Neighbors said that she was a good person, lovely, always warm and welcoming with the community. Bonnie was married to Robert Sanborn. I wasn't able to find any information on when they got married, how long they'd been married, or where they got married. But they shared three children, Candace, Brad, and Brandon. Bonnie was a stay-at-home mom and wife who decided that she wanted to go back to work. Bonnie found a job at the fragrance counter in Tucson, and she enjoyed what she did. She enjoyed being able to have interactions with adults and be able to talk about things that she loved, such as fragrances. Robert was an engineer who recently took a job out of state on the East Coast while his family stayed in Arizona. There's not much information and kind of clashing information. One article says that he took a job in New York. Another article says that he took a job in Florida. It can be either place or somewhere in between. But Bonnie was left to be a single parent while her husband was working on the East Coast. Bonnie was starting to have issues with her older children. She was fighting with her daughter Candace more and more as the days went on, and her son Brad was becoming quite the troublemaker. Candace and Bonnie had a hostile relationship in the months leading up to her death. Candace was a teenager, and as teenagers are, she didn't want to be told what to do, where to do it, and how to do it. Candace was becoming more defiant as the time went on. Months before Bonnie's death, Candace was caught in the physical altercation with a girl at school. She was on top of her, hitting her and shouting that she hated this girl and she was going to kill her. Bonnie's son, Brad. He was known around the community for his, aggr- his aggressive behavior and his troublemaking that he was bringing. Brad was into drugs, alcohol, and being a member of a local gang. The night before Bonnie's murder, Brad and his friend Jason stole a payphone, bringing it back to the Sanborn residence. The boys were in the backyard trying to smash open the payphone when Bonnie saw them through the window. 
Bonnie was very into following the law, so she immediately called the police to notify them of this crime that was being committed in her very own backyard. When the police arrived, they arrested Brad and Jason. On the night of December 8, 1995, Bonnie Sanborn went missing from her home in Tucson, Arizona, as her children were sleeping. In the early morning, Candace entered the room from the sliding door where she walked into a bloody scene. Candace told police that she called 911 when she could no longer locate her mother in her room and there was so much blood. As police arrived on the scene, they noticed that Bonnie's purse was left scattered out on the floor, but all of her money was still in her wallet. Her bed and pillow were covered in blood and there was no sign of forced entry. The odd thing that police noticed, too, was that Bonnie had a deadbolt lock on the inside of her bedroom door to the hallway that led out to her children's room. It was like she was trying to keep someone out that was already welcomed in the home. The police checked the bathroom to see if they can find any clues that may lead them to where Bonnie would go when they stumbled upon blood that was located in the master bathroom. As they looked for signs of Bonnie's body, they noticed something strange. There was no drag marks anywhere. There was no drag marks for Bonnie's body that someone may have been trying to take her out of the home. With the amount of blood they found in the room, that was odd to them. How can all this blood be scattered around but no drag marks or no clues to her body leaving the room? The police looked around outside, checked the sliding glass door when they stumbled upon a trail of tiny blood drops around a pathway that led to the garage. The police opened the garage door only to find that Bonnie's 1989 Chrysler New Yorker was missing from the garage. As the police made their way back to Candace, they noticed that the crime scene was searched through, which was odd to them. They confronted Candace to see what had happened. She said before calling 911, she went through the room and touched everything to see if maybe she can find clues on where her mom would be. Maybe her ID was gone from the purse and she went to the hospital because there was so much blood. She also picked up the pillow to see how much blood was going through it. Police noticed that Candace was acting strangely for someone who just walked through a crime scene as gruesome as the one that they were in. Candace didn't have much emotion. She was emotionless, a wall. She didn't really have any care in the world. She didn't mind the fact that her mother was missing. When police asked Candace when the last time she saw her mother, she stated that she was in her room around 10.30 when her mom walked in and told her it was time for lights out. Candace stated that even though her mother told her it was time to go to sleep, she didn't really care. She stayed up until 4 a.m. that night. When asked, what did you do till 4 a.m., she told them she was just vacuuming her room and doing her laundry for the week. This was really shocking to police. Bonnie's room was 25 feet away where she was awake, vacuuming her room. But yet, she didn't hear a thing. This concerned police, because as toxic as their relationship was and the nature of the crime, police felt like Kansas would have heard something. She would have heard her mom scream or someone breaking into the house, but she heard nothing. As police started the search for Bonnie in her car, they had two more people to make contact with that might have information on where Bonnie might be at. Police tracked down Bonnie's husband, Robert, to find out if he may know where Bonnie could have been or what might have happened to her. Robert stated that he was on the East Coast and only came home two weekends out of the month to visit with his family. 
Roberts knew that he lived in New York or Florida or wherever it may be. Again, articles are very confusing the entire time. And it wasn't until the next weekend that he was supposed to be there. This wasn't his weekend. Police noticed that Robert's demeanor was off. He was closed off and again, motionless like his daughter. Police noticed that there was a numerous amount of flights that he could have taken, but when they searched the flight logs, there was no trace of Robert on any of them. Unfortunately, the police did clear him immediately from any involvement in the disappearance of his wife. Police go to the media to get help. They need some sort of information or clues that maybe they can find from the community. They put out the description of Bonnie's car and talk about the, her disappearance. As the news station starts to play to the local community, a couple stumbles upon Bonnie's car at the edge of the desert. After seeing the story of Bonnie on the news, the couple thinks, hmm, maybe that was her car. And they go back out to see if, in fact, that was Bonnie Sanborn's vehicle. When police arrive on the scene, they find 41-year-old Bonnie Sanborn bound and gagged in the backseat of her car with multiple stab marks to her head, face, and neck. Bonnie was murdered and sexually assaulted. Police noticed that Bonnie was missing her left sock and, when searching the body, found it lodged in her mouth. Bonnie had binding marks on her wrist from the zip ties that were used to restrain her. She had marks on her hands and arms, which indicated that she was trying to fight off her attacker. As police searched the car for any clues to who might have done this, they found a small drop of semen located on Bonnie's inner thigh. The police used a black light to ensure that they got it close enough to collect a body swab for the semen to locate DNA. As the police were trying to exhaust every avenue they can find to locate her son, Brad was still in jail. He was still there from the payphone incident. Police asked Brad if he was angry with his mother for turning him in and wanted to get back at her. Brad tells police that of course he's angry. Why wouldn't he be? But he would never do anything to hurt his mother. The police asked Brad if maybe he had one of his gang friends go to his mother's house to teach her a lesson for what she did to him and his friend. Brad states that he would never do that, but he does start to wonder, maybe Jason was so mad that he was thrown in jail that he might have. Jason wasn't close with his mom. Maybe Jason wanted to pay her back for what she did. Jason was known for getting angry and making poor choices. Police are notified that Jason was released from jail the night of Bonnie's murder. As police look for Jason, they're tipped that he's actually been living in his girlfriend's car because he's homeless. Police go to Jason's girlfriend's house to have a conversation with him about the night of the murder. When police asked Jason if he was angry with Miss Sanborn, he said, hell yeah, I was. Of course, she pissed me off. I don't care that she's dead. She had me sent to jail. Police are questioning Jason when they start to notice that he has injuries to his hands and he has fresh blood on the clothes within the backseat of the car. When police asked Jason where he was the night of Bonnie's murder, he stated that he was with his girlfriend at about 12 a.m. when he passed out in the backseat of her car. His girlfriend's dad said that he found Jason, shockingly, at 9 the next morning. He didn't know that Jason was staying in the backseat of her car, so it was a surprise to him. Jason has no alibi, though, for the time of Bonnie's death, so police ask him if he will submit a DNA sample. They wanted to use his DNA to match it against the one that they found in the car because maybe he killed Bonnie and sexually assaulted her. 
Jason cooperates and gives the police the sample, but this DNA sample comes back as not a match. Nine months go by before the police get tipped to a guy named Larry. Larry was a local drug dealer who would sell pot to high school kids. During this investigation, Larry was giving people information about this murder as he was selling to the high school kids, which made them uncomfortable. He had information that was not yet released to the public. Larry was telling people certain details, such as the sexual assault, the fact that Bonnie was zip-tied, the fact that they knew she had her left sock in her mouth. This was information that was never released. When the police showed up to Larry's place of work, they asked him where he was the night of the murder. Police noticed, though, as they were there talking to him, Larry was tiptoeing around their questions. He knew what he could and couldn't say to them. The police asked Larry for a DNA sample, which he refused. He stated that he wouldn't provide them with it, that they didn't need it. While police were talking to Larry, though, he was smoking a cigarette and towards the end of the conversation, flicked it to the ground. Police grabbed the cigarette to use as their DNA sample. They wanted to test him against the sample that they had. And when Larry noticed, he got angry. He shouted that they couldn't take his DNA, that he refused them, and what they were doing was illegal. But police continued to grab that and send it to forensics for testing. As the police waited for results to come in, a woman came to the police station to tell them a shocking story that would flip this case upside down. A woman comes into the police station telling them that her friend was raped just a few months before Bonnie's death in the same neighborhood, but she didn't report it. Police go to this woman's house to confirm that story and to get more information. As this woman opens the door, the police are confronted with some shocking discoveries. This woman... This woman and Bonnie shared so many similarities. They both had dark hair. They were mothers to children at home. They were married, and they were around the same age in the same neighborhood. When police ask the woman about the rape, she tells them that it was a rumor. It was a rumor from an affair that she had with an older teenager in the area, Freddie. She tells police that Freddie would flirt with her, and he'd always ask her how her day was going. She would make her feel really good about herself, something that she was lacking from her husband. And then things started to get heated. When this woman's husband was away, Freddie would come over and watch movies with her, cuddle, eat popcorn, have dinners, and she stated everything was consensual up until one night. On one evening, Freddie was visiting when things took a frightening turn. She stated that she got up to go do the dishes that were in the sink before going to bed, and that's when Freddie came up to her from behind and forced himself upon her. She refused to go to the police with this information out of fear that her husband would find out and still didn't want to press charges. As police were getting ready to leave, she stops them and lets them know, Freddie is a local teenager from the area, and his name is Frederick Roybell. Police locate Freddie at his place of employment to ask him some questions about the rumor. When police are speaking to Freddie, they notice that he's a nice man. He's very cooperative with the police. He's not the kind of kid that would be caught in a scene like this. Freddie goes on to tell them a completely different story than the one that the woman told him. He stated that they were having an affair, and on the night in question, they had consensual intercourse. He stated that the woman was afraid that her husband was going to find out and broke it off. So when people found out about their secret love affair, she started this rumor that he raped her. 
She never took it to the police because it wasn't true. He said that the woman was afraid that once she went to the police with this rumor, or once her friends came out and told her husband about the affair, that he would leave her. So they stopped talking. Police asked Freddie if he knew Bonnie Sanborn, and he said yes, that she was a very nice woman. He tells the police that he would help her with certain tasks around the house when her husband was away. She needed help with her weeds. She needed help with her sprinklers. There was different things around the house that he was able to help her with. Police tell Freddie about what happened to Mrs. Sanborn. They ask him if he'd be willing to submit DNA to them just as a routine check because they were talking to him. Freddie says that he's more than willing to give his sample. He gives it and he goes back to work without a care in the world. Police leave that day feeling like they're back at square one, not knowing that they just had the largest break in this case. Freddie Frederick came back a match. Police bring Freddie in for questioning, not letting him know that the trace of semen that was located at the crime scene is his. When the police ask Freddie what he was doing the weekend of Bonnie's murder, he lets them know that his brother was in town. He was on leave from his military duty. He said that he hasn't seen his brother in a long time and that they were out all weekend long celebrating. Police cross-check his story, only to find out that his brother was at his post all weekend long and his actual leave was weeks prior. Police decide that it's time to hit Freddie hard. It's time to get a confession out of him. Officers bring in photos of Bonnie stating how beautiful she was and asked if they were having an affair too. Were they sleeping around just a little? Freddie denies this, saying that he never slept with her and only knows her from the neighborhood. He only knows her from helping her around her house. The officers then show Freddie the crime scene photos and points directly to the place where they found his semen. Freddie demands a lawyer immediately. Police arrest Freddie for first-degree murder, rape, and kidnapping. With this being Arizona, Freddie is at risk to go for the death penalty. He can get the death penalty for the murder of Bonnie. He confesses immediately. Due to the evidence the police have against him, they were going to go for the death penalty. Freddie lets the police know that he noticed Bonnie around the neighborhood sometimes and was attracted to her. He would always be around helping her if she needed anything, and he stalked her for months. On the early morning of December 8, 1995, Freddie went to Bonnie's house with the intent to rape her. He brought a chipping hammer in case he needed to use it. Freddie went around the back of the house where he noticed the sliding door was unlocked. As Freddie enters the room, Bonnie is awoken, and she asks who's there. When Freddie hears this, he gets nervous, and he jumps on the bed, hitting her in the head with the hammer. Bonnie tries to run away when Freddie makes a devastating blow to her head. He fractured her skull. Bonnie is lifeless on the floor of her room. As Freddie grabs zip ties and binds her arms behind her back and takes her left sock off and gags her with it, Freddie unlocks her bedroom door and goes to the hallway to hear if anyone was awoken by the noise. He listens for a minute and notices that no one is coming. No one heard anything. When he doesn't hear this, he turns around and goes to the living room. The house is similar to the setup as his own, so he knows that there's a light in the front of the garage. He goes to the switch and turns off the light, leaving behind a bloody fingerprint. 
Freddie walks back to Bonnie's room, locks the door, and washes his hands in the sink. He dumps her purse in search of her keys and picks Bonnie's lifeless body up and walks her to the garage into the backseat of her 1989 Chrysler New Yorker and drives to the end of the desert to rape the dead Bonnie, leaving a tiny drop of semen on her inner thigh that will be the only piece of evidence that the police will ever find to connect Frederick Rebell to the murder of Bonnie Sanborn. With Freddie's confession, he signs a rare plea agreement, giving up his rights to ever appeal his conviction. He did this in exchange for escaping the death penalty sentence that they were going after. Frederick was given a life sentence without the possibility of parole, and he's now serving his time at the Arizona State Prison. As we discuss the horrific death of Bonnie Sanborn, my only one thought is how sad I am for her children. Freddie was such a horrible person to rape, torture, and murder Bonnie while two of her children were sleeping in the room next to her, 25 feet away from the attack. Bonnie's children are forever scarred by the murder of their mother. Brad went on an interview in 2014 saying he wished he could apologize to his mother for the way that he was growing up. His mother only wanted the best for him, and he treated her so poorly. He feels the burden that maybe if he didn't do the things he did, he would have been there that night. He would have been there to protect his mom. Candace stated that she's forever traumatized by the murder. She was, tre she was treated like a suspect, a person that the police thought would do this to her own mother. There hasn't been much information regarding Brandon or Robert, but I hope Brandon's dealing with the trauma that comes from seeing his mother's room the way that he did. This brings us to the end of our episode. I hope you enjoyed learning more about Bonnie Sanborn. As always, thank you for listening to Murder by Nature. If you enjoyed our show, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any streaming platform that you're currently on. And be sure to come back next week for the discussion that we go into, the disappearance and murder of Sierra Lemaire. Lamera vanished on March 16, 2012 on her way to school. That's all I'm going to give you from that story. Until next time, I am your host, Jasmine Hernandez. Don't forget to stay safe, don't murder people, and don't be murdered. You guys are all lovely humans. I'll see you next week.